Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Jasmine Mazafari, a writer and director whose terrific first feature, Firecrackers, starts streaming on Crave in Canada today and arrives on demand this Friday, July 12th, as well as in a few theaters in the U.S., Starring Michaela Kurinsky and Karina Evans as two teen friends plotting to escape their tiny town and oppressive lives for a new start in a big city, it's an energetic, confident picture with a great visual style, compelling leads, basically the whole package. It's a hell of a debut. It was embraced by critics when it premiered at TIFF last year and continued to pick up recognition when it made Canada's top 10 in December and won two Canadian Screen Awards in March. Simone Smith won for Best Film Editing and Jasmine was named the year's Best Director, which seems fair. Jasmine picked The Virgin Suicides, Sofia Coppola's 1999 adaptation of the Jeffrey Eugenides novel about the unknowable tragedy of the Lisbon sisters, five young women in suburban 1970s Michigan whose lives and deaths fascinate and obsess the boys who thought they knew them. Coppola's debut features a breakout performance by Kirsten Dunst as Lux, the sister who serves as our point of contact, and solid supporting turns from the likes of A.J. Cook, Josh Hartnett, James Woods, Kathleen Turner, and Danny DeVito. It's not so much a narrative as an experience, a beguiling, disturbing, drifting thing that still carries a strange power two decades later. And there's a beauty to that. This is someone else's movie. This was a very formative film for me in my teenage years. I saw it, I think, when I was like 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw it with my sister, and I think for us, it really felt like something that validated a melancholy that we had felt for a long time. Um, and I hadn't really seen something that dealt with teenage girls specifically that honored that experience in that way. And um, I felt the filmmaking itself sort of stayed with me throughout the years since. And I watched it again last year with uh, when it was at the Lightbox. I think it was last year, two oh, years ago. I can't yeah. remember. With my with the editor of Firecracker, Simone Smith, and we we and the whole audience was there around sort of the same age. And I think it still held up like it's still I saw new things in it that I hadn't seen before that I appreciated um, and it's a film I return to time and time again and it just it's kind of reveals new things to me or I feel differently about aspects of the filmmaking or the storytelling yeah it's um it's something I've been wrestling with because I was not a big fan of it at the time and mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to figure out if it was my own failing or I mean obviously it was uh, because now 20 years later it's it's um, it's not only revered by by a lot of people but it's also very clearly the first step in Sofia Coppola's evolution as a filmmaker so looking back it makes perfect sense and at the time I just remember being kind of restless um the the sort of gauzy approach rubbed me the wrong way or it just didn't feel um I don't know I've been I've been sort of interrogating my own response to it recently probably because this is coming up but also um it was uh, covered on uh, on another podcast, podcast like it's nineteen ninety nine by by Phyllis Coven and, and Kenny Nybart, and they were much more uh, eager to embrace it the first time they saw it. And it, to me, it just felt like this odd curiosity. And then the more I think about it, I'm trying to figure out: Am I was I dismissive of of Coppola because she was you know Francis's kid and a little lingering antipathy from Godfather three and and all of that, right. but. The more I think about it, it's like that's actually the best 
possible version of a talent, right? It's to come out of that that crucible of being completely disregarded and then find the other thing you do and just mm-hmm. do it so specifically. Yeah. And so rewatching it this time, it was really, oh, I missed all of this. Mm-hmm. I just, I'm, I'm basically starting by apologizing for <laughs> not taking it seriously the first time. But right. I really, I like what she does. Mm-hmm. I just, I just wasn't in a place where I could notice it, I guess. And I was 30 at the time. So I don't know what that says about me. Probably nothing great. (laughs) Well, yeah, it's, um, I, I didn't come, I didn't really know who she was when I watched it because I wasn't, I didn't like know that she was in the Godfather. I think Mm. I was sort of too young to like, only later did I discover that. Yeah. Was this your first experience of her as a filmmaker? Yes, it was. And then later I would go, I went back and watched, uh, I guess her short film, I think, Lick the Star or something, because I was curious to see, which nobody is, I don't think very many people have seen, yeah, it's black and white. I, I don't know that I've seen it, actually. I know about it, but I'm, now that you mention it, I I'm, I'm always think about, um, you know, like with Zoe, the, the piece she wrote for New York Stories is her first thing, but she was like, she was a kid, and mm-hmm. again, her, her father was sort of using her as a, as a vessel more than a creative partner, I right. think. Right, right. So, yeah, um, well, how did you find like the stars where did you see it um i think i i think it was released online um for some reason and um i only saw that one time it was years ago but i feel that you can see her voice like what's in virgin suicides there's like hints in of in like the star but it feels a little bit more like film school ish or something even though i know i don't think she went to film school obviously um yeah i don't think yeah i feel like her dad mentored her and other people she was around but um yeah, I, I didn't come in knowing sort of who she was. And at the time, I didn't have... Um, I didn't know of a lot of female filmmakers uh, in general. Like, I wasn't seeking it out until much later. Mm-hmm. Or even just independent films until late, a little bit later in my life. Um, so, yeah, I've, I don't know how I came across it. Probably just at, like, the Bandito video where I grew yeah. up. Um, somehow picked it out. And... Uh, it yeah like i said it like kind of validated some it it hit like it struck a chord that's of something that's inexplicable and maybe maybe it's something that women can only understand in that sense of like mm. the what she's trying to say about being a teenage girl and it's only one perspective of being a teenage girl it's like a very white like middle class kind of 70s look at it but it still resonated um and i think that like very early in the film it's almost like a thesis where Cecilia says, like, to um, Danny DeVito's character, right? She says, obviously, Doctor, you've no, you've never been a teenage, 13-year-old right. girl. And I always think that that was, like, the setup for a lot of the other um, explorations in the film. Of, like, being, like, maybe you won't, certain people won't understand this film. Yeah. Well, I mean, so much of it is about being alienated from everyone else anyway. So that's an, another barrier, right? If you've... Uh, you could argue, that, or one could argue rather, that it's a it's a film about depression, or it's a film about isolation, or it's a film about being trapped in a gender role or in a in a social construct that you can't break out of. And the book is so much about the boys not being able to understand them that it was really interesting to watch the movie version take that and just say, "Ah, eh, the boys don't matter." Like it doesn't matter that they couldn't understand it. That this is this event has happened and it's it's resonating through everyone's lives, including the dead ones. It's it's like they have so much more presence in the film 
than the, the boys do. And they're not men. They're definitely boys. Yeah. I mean, you get that one flash forward to uh, old Michael yes. Perret, and it's just, it's instant. You know, like, in a second, we know that he hasn't achieved anything, and yes. he hasn't accomplished anything. He's just, he's hollow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I felt like that was Coppola sort of, not not cruelly or harshly dismissing him or even the book the text the source text but just saying like they're not reliable narrators yeah ignore them it doesn't matter let's just look at what's going on in these moments yeah exactly i didn't actually i haven't read the book um i downloaded it on like kindle i have still read it but uh i read that the book does favor um the boy's perspective more but it's funny you say that because when i was young um, I didn't. I, I don't think I was looking at films in the same way. And when mm. I got older and I watched it, I was kind of almost disappointed that the girls felt so remote too, yeah. because it was still through. You know, it's still through sort of, for the most part, through the like the narration of of the boys and through their viewpoint. And um, I felt like the girls, they weren't telling their own story in a, in a certain way. But then I thought, you know, that's kind of the point of how silly sometimes men can romanticize women. And how, obviously, it's so... I think by the end, you don't see it necessarily coming, that, that like, very harsh, uh, disturbing imagery of the suicides. Yeah, yeah. Because it just kind of shows, like, how they were misinterpreting um, these, like, young females' emotional um, displays of emotional distress or, or, you know... Or they were sort of reading into it as they were dreamy or they were ethereal. And, yeah. and uh, there was I, a sadness I could never identify. Yeah. You know, you hear that sort of cliche a lot as they try to articulate something they clearly just didn't understand. Yeah, and I, I often think about male artists in the way that they portray female characters in general or like other filmmakers who see women through that lens still to this day. And I almost oh, yeah. wonder if she's kind of commenting on that too in a very subtle way. Probably not, but I, it has new meaning every time I watch it. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, it seems like so much of a... Um, John Harkness once uh, dismissed all of Coppola. I think he was dismissing her as, as uh, by saying, Sophia Coppola, by saying all of her films are the same. They're all about, you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, taking, I'm well taken care of, nobody gets me. And I can see that, but I don't know that it's a negative. With the exception of the bling ring, right. I really, I find her perspective really, really interesting on that mm-hmm. because she's acknowledging privilege, you know, like in the way that a kid who grew up with a lot of money would acknowledge it, which is to say, like, oh yeah, it helps, but not really understanding how to wield it or what to do with it. Yeah. Um, but then that, then you see Marie Antoinette, which is all about that. And you're like, oh, I, she does get it. She totally understands it. And mm-hmm. somewhere is about someone trying to be, uh, connected to his daughter, even mm-hmm. though he doesn't really connect to his own life in a way. And it's all about the money and the privilege and the isolation. But she's, she's making films that are so wrapped up in the understanding of understanding. Yeah. It's a weird formulation, I know, but but mm-hmm. I think like The Virgin Suicides is a movie that tries to understand something you can't understand, mm-hmm. something that a secret that's taken with the person, like who leaves, who yeah. uh, the sisters go, and no one understands it, and it's the equivalent of, I mean, it is a tragedy, but it's a tragedy that I, I keep thinking about Picnic at Hanging Rock mm-hmm. this time, which yeah. was another, I mean, that one was made by Peter Weir, but it is yeah. a distinctly feminine view of trauma. Yeah. 
And the TV series did something else with it that I, I don't know if I've seen I haven't seen, seen the series. It's, it's one of those things where they just decided to unnecessarily complicate everything with backstories and flash forwards. And, and the whole point of the movie is that it's nothing we can comprehend. Right. And The Virgin Suicides has that same energy and that same delicacy yeah. in, in unfolding its characters and unpacking what's going on. We get hints, we get glances, we get size and moments where things could have been different and at the same time there's this sledgehammer of inevitability mm-hmm. and yeah i i would have loved to see it when i was younger because i would have had you know even less of an expectation of what was what story was being told or how it was being told and yeah, and yeah it's just it's so gauzy and and ephemeral yes. that it's hard to get a handle on but at the same time there's this undercurrent of real horror yeah. that, that builds and builds and builds, but never, obviously, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm, no, I'm floundering, like, but... No, I, I, that's what was appealing to me is like the this sort of like um, gauziness that you speak of, like contrast against the super dark undercurrent or like melancholy again. Mm. I like, I really like the idea of melancholy in general. Like I feel like um, exploring it in, in film is interesting and there's many different ways to do it, but... I also like Picnic Hanging Rock, too, for that, of, like, that, um, the darkness, uh, that is the undercurrent of the, of that film, too, but I think sometimes also things that are got, like, associated with feminine, the feminine, are sometimes dismissed mm-hmm. so easily, and, um, or like, a feminine viewpoint or a feminine, like, feminine sensibilities about, like, just aesthetically, and I think that Virgin Suicides is quite Fem- traditionally feminine in the sure. way that we think about it. and I think that that's maybe I feel like that can be dismissed or was dismissed for so long as being like it's gir- it's a girly film or yeah. like but she I, I thought that the way uh, I still feel like it really got at a truth I mean I, those girls are uh, that comment you were saying earlier by that critic who was saying they're I'm pretty nobody understands me and yeah. stuff I just feel like that's a, such a simplistic way of looking at it that's not um, that again kind of takes agency away from the, the the filmmaker and also the women in the film like the characters mm-hmm. and um, I think also it's like obviously you have to pay attention to the people who are viewing it and watching it and like where are they coming from and how are they seeing the world uh, because I I when I was in that theater, of course, it was full of women, but it was also full of a lot of young men who, I guess, connected to the film at, at a younger age, too, and they were, like, just as as much in it. So, I, 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 and I think Sofia Coppola even said, like, a lot of teenage people come up to her and say, like, I really love that film. And she's like, how did you see it? Because I guess nobody saw it when it came out in the States. <laughs> it did not do well. No. It didn't do well. So, so, but why is it connected, connecting with so many people on like a cult level? Mm-hmm. I think it's striking a chord, like a deep chord um, with people that maybe it's hard to explain. Like, I don't, I, I, sometimes I find it hard to explain why I connect with that film on such a, like on a, I mean, there's other films, her other films I don't connect with as much. Okay. Just to put it in perspective, like I don't, um, I, I still like Lost in Translation and everything. I like them for different reasons. Mm. But this one, to me, feels there's something sort of inexplicable about what it is that draws me to it and i think it's that i think it's also that the girls are not um they're not telling you everything that's going on obviously it's like that like mystery that is so perpetually intriguing and you can kind of like 
And I just think the way of like, you know, my instinct with, with firecrackers and stuff is like to give the female characters the screen time, the agency on, but she did it, you know, through, through the boys. And I thought that that was like such an interesting way of looking at, um, of like, of like women coming of age through, through their lens. I just, I appreciate it more now than yeah. I did back then. Well, it's an interesting, I mean, their perspective is an interesting device uh, narratively just because it creates an extra level of distance. But also yeah. we see the house the way they do, the way the boys do as a fortress, yes. right? Like there's a there's a mystery inside that they're not allowed to access. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, it it is about isolation on both sides. Yeah. So the camera itself keeps us out we're, we're not or the screen does we're not permitted to understand yeah uh and and i suppose the the more obvious uh the more obvious device is that the the sisters never really explain themselves to themselves yeah so we don't get to be privy to that there's yeah. no conversation that unlocks everything there's no mystery there's no one line of dialogue where an hour mm-hmm. later you just realize oh that's why yeah there's nothing it's no. just no but it felt more true and honest in that way to me in a way and i think when I was young, I really connected with Cecilia's character of being like at a party where you're supposed to be having fun, but just can't. So I think there's a lot of like elements about showing mental illness or like depression that I also could connect with at that age mm-hmm. that hadn't been shown. Um, and that she, yeah, like I thought like there was just some like very honest moments there, like very uncomfortable moments that like I remember the party where there's a kid who has down syndrome and they're like playing with him and she feels so uncomfortable by that and it's just like I I just like some of those those specific moments maybe more than like the trip fontaine stuff uh that I I think I was connecting with that and obviously just like the atmospheric uh there's so much in that atmosphere that was telling us sort of uh, on an emotional level what was going on um, like those shots of the house when everything's wrapped in plastic at the end and uh, just from the opening too like there's just such a eeriness to that film a, like a haunting quality um, and I'm sure the soundtrack also helps I was helps. just about to say yeah there's there's this sort of hopelessness to the air soundtrack that, yeah. that sounds it's beautiful and it's it's melodic in a really anti-melodic way I mean it's just it's yeah. always the whole film is arguing with itself all the time um, and I think that's how she conveys the tension yeah. in the household that's how she tells us everything isn't right but we never see it not directly mm-hmm. we never really get to understand it and the, the score is you know there was this vogue um, I'm trying to remember who uh, Roman Coppola got to score CQ I don't mm. think it was air but there was the same kind of European atmospheric ambient sort of sound but just more poppy because it was set in the 60s right. and it felt like there was this little cross-pollination among the Coppolas mm. they were all just playing with each other's toys and trying to figure it out <laughs> right. but what she does with air is really unnerving in a way that the music isn't like you listen to it on its own and it's, it's quite pleasant but then mm. as a contrast it's it's like just like this little finger scratching at the back of your neck that yeah. tells you to be on guard all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's so haunting. I, I absolutely fell in love with that soundtrack when I heard it. And it made me really fall in love with electronic music in general um, and sort of the power of what the, that genre of music could be. And I obviously, in my film, employed that too with mm-hmm. electronic score. Um, but very differently. In a different way. Yeah. Probably more 
like definitely more confrontational way. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I was very inspired by, by the use of that. And also just, again, the contrast to the girls and like how eerie and dark that soundtrack was mm. to the contrast to the girls, but maybe that's who the girls really are underneath it all. Um, but yeah. And I also found out that I think they shot a lot of it in Toronto. Yeah. It surprised me. Which I, I was I like, I did not oh, know that. Yeah. Now I look years. at Toronto differently. <laughs> like just because I, I, I can see it kind of now when mm-hmm. I think about their house and their street and everything, but um, yeah, there's a suburban look that we have yeah. that somehow feels seventies. Yes. Certain neighborhoods haven't really evolved. Yeah, exactly. And I was, I was really surprised. I don't think I knew that until I heard it on, on, um, podcast like in 1999 oh, I was yeah. like really wait I and then I looked it up and it was true yeah um and it's it's that's I um you know it's that sort of white Presbyterian look mm-hmm. that we have in the city or yeah. had it's starting to change but uh it's so anonymous it's so um conformist mm-hmm. like everything look all the houses look the same wherever you wherever you turn in that film yeah and the and when when you were talking about the score, I realized, of course, that like the big the big drop is that it's out of time. The music doesn't belong in the seventies, right? Right. So it's also some kind of distancing feel. Yeah, but it's interesting because the track she does use from the seventies feels sad to me too. I don't know why. Like I don't know if it's just in context with the rest of, um, like a non love, oh, like right, those yeah. tracks, and like I don't know. Just she picked very specific. Um, I don't know what the genre of them in the 70s would it's like be called. Proto emo, really. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't know what you call it. Either, yeah. But it, yeah, they're they're mournful, mope rock kind of yeah. songs. And and Air, I think, used very similar instruments to what would be used in the 70s too, like xylophone, and and I felt like there was a nice tie-in with the time period without it being like period. Yeah. You know. No, it doesn't draw. I mean, the clothes are. I mean, the clothes look like hipster clothes now. Yeah. It's it's come back around again after 20 years to yeah. sort of look like the present. Yeah. Even the facial hair choices are kind of familiar. Right. Um, and then you have people like... Um, well, Kristen Dunst looks like she could be in any era. She's sort of yeah. got a timeless look in her in the film. But, yeah. But everyone around her looks like her. Yeah. Like the sisters all sort of have... I mean, they look like sisters, but mm-hmm. they've also... There's a really subtle costuming thing going on where they echo each other in frame yes. a lot yeah and again it's eerie without being eerie yeah and you know every time i've gone back to it i look for the signs it's like mm-hmm. is there a single right. is there a single moment is there a symbol is there something in here that looks like a clue mm-hmm. and it's impenetrable mm-hmm. which yeah i kind of love yeah i feel like for me i always felt like i just i just understood like the, how sad they were that's like, the guy snoring. If anyone is listening, oh, don't feel bad. I'm not. I'm not going. <laughs> Sometimes it happens. Um, I'm sorry. You're no, no, no. Uh, I just felt like I. I never understood what the boys were saying. They're like, oh, like I'm looking for like clues and stuff. But I'm like, I already kind of felt like I. Um, I'm always fascinated with uh, <laughs> with films about women being trapped or girls being trapped. Hmm. And this is definitely that. Yeah, it was like one at the start of my, like a lot large exploration of that. And um, so I always felt like I understood, I didn't need a lot of explanation as to why they felt so, you know, sad. Like it didn't matter to me. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't need those plot, um, like 
those need, details. Yeah, the info dump. I didn't need it. I just felt like it, it wasn't about that for me. And um, yeah, so, so yeah, and I remember even thinking like it's somewhat after they die, it keeps going for a bit in like that party where they're like kind of mock with the gas masks yeah. on and everything. I thought that was, again, just like deeply uncomfortable but really interesting and that guy's like goodbye cruel world and then he drops into the pool and stuff and i was just like yeah i like how everybody's just kind of moving on and 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 trying to get past the darkness Mm -hmm. of everything by internalizing it yeah by 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 consuming it yeah and that's not going to work no i mean that's why the movie exists right because it's this memory that still won't leave them yeah um and i think yeah a, a lot of it too comes down to how the film remembers details mm-hmm. because we are watching a collective um, narrative, like a version of the story that yeah. people tell themselves. Uh, I think that explains James Wood's performance and why he's so like oh, yeah. ludicrously rigid, which of course now turns out to be the James Woods that we know. Right. But, but it's such a strange performance for him. Yeah. Um, and it starts to inform the household in a way that, yeah. I mean, I think it's intentional. It's sort of this corrosive thing that's going on where he's just, he's way too wound up. There's something else we don't see. Yes. Something else we'll never see. Yeah. The moment where he's talking to plants in the hallway yeah. is so, yeah, funny, but also sad at the same time. Yeah. Or when he's like, trying to explain planes to the boys at, and I just like, oh, my heart goes. <laughs> yeah. Just feel, but yeah, once he gets to the plants and, and that his colleagues just kind of like, oh, he's he's affected or the priest comes to visit him and i think he, something weird happens there too mm. in the house um yeah i i like all those sort of mysterious things it's so it's so different than the way that i've made films and i hope that i can sort of play with more nuanced things in mm. the future because i feel like with my film it was such on a like things had to always be constantly happening because you're kind of on this like these girls want to leave if they're not trying to do that then what the hell are we doing here so it's like but i like that virgin suicides is kind of like these moments yeah um and it there's like there's a a, a building tension but it's not in the you know it's it has its own pace yeah. deliberate pace well i mean firecrackers is a film that has a much faster heartbeat yeah i guess just for for shorthand yeah but with the virgin suicides it's already over yeah so there's an inevitability instead of a possibility we're just watching people come to terms or try to come to terms with something that happened decades earlier yeah and yeah firecrackers just like it's racing towards possibility um so of course it's more energetic Mm -hmm. but it's when and when you pick the virgin suicides it was one of those moments where it's like oh yeah that makes sense right yeah Uh, yeah yeah yeah. but it's a really interesting parallel like 20 years apart these two completely different takes on what it is to be a young woman feeling powerless Mm -hmm. even if you aren't Mm -hmm. and in one case the only power the sisters have is to take themselves out take themselves away uh, to to end it and in Firecrackers, that's just not even an option. No, I think when I think about films like even Thelma and Louise, like, again, there's that theme of women. And you see this also in something like Mustang, where one of the characters takes their own life. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a, there's a theme of women ending their lives to find freedom. Right. Which I find to be like, I can't believe we're all not, like, looking at this and being like, look, like, 
what is this actually saying about our society? If this is the na- a narrative that's been in several films. Oh, yeah. So And, and is accepted, right? As, yes. as, a, as a reasonable response to things. I, yeah. I'm just... I still think The Simpsons nailed it when Homer watches the end of Thelma and Louise and, and <laughs> says, you know, like, oh, they're going to kill themselves to teach us men. It's like, that's... That's not an answer, but it would no. appeal to it appeals to Homer Simpson. Yeah. It shouldn't appeal to the rest of us. I mean, and it's not exclusively, you know, hashtag not all women die this way yes. to teach men a lesson. It, it one flew over the cuckoo's nest. There's all sorts mm-hmm. of films where men do it as well. And it's still weird and wrong, and and uh, mm-hmm. it's it's like such an empty victory. Yeah. Um, and I still remember thinking about Thelma and Louise, like when it when it when I saw it in 1990 at the screening. When it ended, it was just like okay, that was. A woman wrote this. That's a weird way to end this film. Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't get it uh, as a as a narrative device. Right. I mean, unless you're dealing with and to go back to James Woods, like a videodrome situation where the character kills himself to end the movie, mm-hmm. and it's not a victory; it's perceived as such. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that it's triumphant to to kill yourself, I don't buy it. But I don't think it's triumphant. I think it's more that these people feel like they have no other choice right. to feel free. Like in I mean, I know we're not talking about Thelma and Louise, but, like, they specifically left a life where they felt like there was no freedom. And the only way to be free in that situation was to, to end their life. And mm-hmm. I think, I wonder if, like, in Virgin, Virgin Suicides, if that was a similar feeling for some reason. Um, yeah, I, I don't see it def- I don't see it as a triumphant thing at all. I think it's, a, I think it always comes back to freedom. It's something that... Uh, I think that, and I, like same thing in Mustang with one of the one of the the girls who doesn't want to be married off, doesn't want to be molested by her dad anymore. Right, is is like I don't know if it was to find freedom, but I can also understand yeah, it. Yeah, that's a narrative formulation that makes sense. Yeah, um, just in terms of being pushed into a corner and, and feeling like you have no choice. Yeah. Thelma and Louise spends the entire movie getting them to that point yeah. and it feels manipulative it feels artificial like the characters are being manipulated right in Mustang yeah it definitely feels more organic right uh, and believable and um, and then the Virgin Suicides has the characters be for the most part teenagers where mm-hmm. everything you feel is the most intense feeling you've ever had and, and I've never been a 13 year old girl yeah but I understand the the absolute Desperation that comes with being a teenager and never it, you know, like having no sense of control and, and mm-hmm. no sense of agency, and I get the I get where that's going, and it's and of course the film is slightly poetic and aestheticized and, and it yeah. just it's unrealistic from the beginning, so you can believe that something like this would happen mm-hmm. in this world, and Coppola finds a way to make it feel emotionally credible. Like I I I knew it was I mean I you know it's coming it's yeah. the title of the film, but the the question you work with while you watch it the first time is what the permutations will be and how many and how how will this go mm-hmm. and then in the end it's just the worst possible version of it yeah i still felt shocked even though i knew it was you just still feel i think because there's that one flash to a, a fantasy of them driving right, away yeah. followed directly by and also because the kid is the the one of the main kids i forget his name in his character name, but he's like talking about feeling a girl up and then stumble, like it like no- knocks into one of them hanging. And I think it's like that, just that like, uh, yeah, delaying that expectation or like playing with that expectation right at the end still made me feel shocked, even though I knew it was called for suicide. Yeah. Um, cause I guess you just, 
you you just feel like yeah you just don't see that coming in that way or something like that yeah um, and it lands like a body blow I yeah mean, even though you know it's coming it's worse than you can imagine yeah because it's so quiet and so simple because it's quiet i think that's also yeah it's not something overplayed and it just feels probably really realistic in that way in a really disturbing way um but i always appreciated that i felt like that was that was kind of it was bold for for what i kind of knew i mean at that age and what i was watching which wasn't a lot of like after that then i started sort of opening my eyes yeah as a teenager to other independent uh, cinema which is nice because it kind of came through a female filmmaker yeah. um i mean sophia coppola is a great gateway drug Yes. <laughs> like you learn about all the other uh, disciplines and all the other storylines. And she really does, given how um, specific her, her focus of interest, her field of interest seems to be, she really does change it up. I mean, she makes films in different eras and different contexts yeah. uh, from different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so what, where, where did you go from where did you go from there? Gus Van Sant. Okay. I really like like his Jerry and um, Elephant and like I guess sort of the death series right more than like goodwill hunting or something like that because they again kind of i obviously like very atmospheric films about like um that have i think that darkness to them i think maybe there's they all have a lot of death in them (laughs) Uh, i realized but i didn't stay there you know i didn't stay in that section i ventured off i into into other forms of filming especially like social realist cinema a little bit later but um yeah i feel like her and and gus van sant to me had like this really good handle on telling giving information to the audience through atmosphere Mm -hmm. um and like feeling but again jerry was not popular when it came out i think a lot of people hated it no no it was a i mean it was i think it was booed at can or something i I love it I i think it is one of his best films because just it, it strips away everything yeah. including you know verbs it's just, yes. just it's so great at that at reducing everything to behavior and, and yeah. moment to moment realizations yeah yeah um and when you when you finally realize just how bad it is mm-hmm. uh it becomes a commentary on male bravado but unconsciously yeah. i don't know that he knew that when he was making it he said he found it in the editing room oh really and it's like how <laughs> right it, because the the script alone would have to be just so mm-hmm. simple and 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 direct. Yeah. Um, and yeah, but it's also as evocative and unreadable, like both Elephant and Jerry are, yeah. as the Virgin Suicides, because they're not movies that disclose a great deal about their characters. Yeah. You know, Elephant sort of taunts you with all the different ways that things could happen, mm-hmm. and then in the end refuses to give you a reason. Just he used every myth about the the Columbine shooters to right. to fill in those characters' blanks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of it's real, some of it's just rumor, but mm-hmm. if it's all there, then, like, none of it means anything. Yeah. It's just more disturbing that way. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I never really thought about it in that way. Um, and I think talking about it now, I'm like, oh, there is there is such a similarity between those three films. Um, but... Yeah, I forgot. I lost my train of thought no, there. What I was gonna say. You were saying that you spent some time in a in a, a morbid wave. Definitely, of cinema. De- and associated with my teenage years. But that makes sense. Which makes sense, of course. Super moody person, and <laughs> I don't feel like that really ever left me though. Like I feel like it's always um, there. And but yeah, I really yeah. Same with Elephant. I think. Oh, what I was gonna say is they feel to me what I 
I think at the time I discovered them in my life feel very American. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously the, what I thought of as American cinema changed the more I was exposed to, especially like 70s cinema, which seemed to probably influence those specific filmmakers too, I like just so, based yeah. on their age and everything. But to me, they feel like, like Jerry, like Virgin Suicides, even though it was shot in Toronto, like feels very American or what I sort of thought of as American filmmaking or indie filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it definitely conforms to a certain type of cinema that was very mm-hmm. present at the time, like yeah. the post Van Sant stuff, I guess, because yeah. he was already shifting into the mainstream and mm-hmm. um, she was coming out of whatever she was watching, right? Like we're all yeah. shaped by what we experience, and yeah. what, what we consume and what we like. Yeah. But yeah, it feels... But the characters too across those films kind of feel... Have like a distinctly some, American, yeah. distinctly or like, yeah. And I wonder if that was like a reaction to like what came earlier, like in the eighties or something like that, because they're like so rem- they're so like withdrawn. A lot mm. of those characters, yeah. I mean, they're American, um, but they're not idealized Americans. No, I mean, using like sort of he casts Matt Damon against himself in Jerry, right? Right, because he's not the super confident, competent mm-hmm. man, mm-hmm. Uh, and the Virgin Suicides builds. A mythologized version of suburbia yeah from the 70s that still again just using michael Perret was just a stroke of genius i mm-hmm. remember I, I i laughed out loud in the theater which was sort of disrespectful <laughs> but it's just like oh no of course if you if you pick if you need a shorthand for a guy who didn't achieve his potential yeah and this is not meant to be disrespectful to michael Perret, but you pick a guy who was positioned as a major movie star mm-hmm. and it didn't happen mm-hmm. and then 15 years later it's like oh that guy yeah, I get that. Yeah. Um, he just, you know, for whatever reason, he just didn't have an, a massive movie star career. And instantly he brings that baggage because uh, he's a fa- She had to, like, that's such a smart choice. She had to pick somebody we would all recognize mm-hmm. and we would all understand is not the person he wanted to be when he grew up. Right. And it's just so smart. That, I, that little decision alone has just made that movie stand out for me. Right. For years and years, it's like, no, this is someone who thinks very carefully about what she does. Yeah. And, and it extends to Lost in Translation, where you can say that the whole thing is her story about going on a press junket with Spike Jones and how this character is probably Cameron Diaz. And it's like, it's irrelevant, ultimately, because she's picked people who are just as interesting on their own. Mm-hmm. Um, and the scene, you know, the scene where she gets uh, the apple box in somewhere for Stephen Dorff to stand right. on next to Michelle Monaghan, who is very, very tall. It's just... It's really smart. It's really specific. Mm-hmm. And the idea that Stephen Dorff might have grown up to be Tom Cruise right. in a different life. You can kind of see it. And she's working from a... a she's got the understanding of film culture in her bones. Mm-hmm. And that Michael Paré moment is just... And, and again, casting James Woods probably as well. It's yeah. really smart playing him against decades of, his, of an established persona. Mm-hmm. And Kirsten Dunst, like, I think, is also like talking about American... Like she's sort of that all American vibe, especially for that time. Yeah. Of what that was, con- you know, considered like blonde and white. <laughs> yeah, she's very cheerleadery. Cheerleadery. Like, like, um, even the name Lux is sort of speaks to a certain level of yeah elite position, um, just evolutionary, like yes. genetically. Yes, for sure. Um, but I remember reading that Sofia Coppola like wanted to pick her because she felt like as an actress she had a dark side to her, a darker mm-hmm. side to her, which I thought was interesting. Like again, a very deliberate. Um, she knows how to deploy this stuff 
and that made me uh, just lean in closer to this most recent rewatch because I realized we barely discussed the plot. I don't think there really is one. Yeah. But just in terms of encounters and and moment-to-moment scenes, is there anything that you wanted to zoom in on? Because it's all just sort of a... Like, the only thing that I can track right off the bat is, of course, like, Lux's obsession with Trip and that sort of stuff. But that, to me, was the more, like, the least interesting stuff to me of the film. Like, it's still, I think it's fun. Mm -hmm. It's nice to have that as, like, a, a, a fun aspect to the darker qualities of it. And, like, you have that heart moment with, like, um, is that song called Magic Man? Oh, yes, I think it is. Is it? Yeah. Like, just like that, I think is so... I, a lot of people think of that moment, I think, as, like, an iconic moment. And I'm like, yeah, like, there's that that sort of tracking of him. And his character is kind of interesting, I think, because, again, it's, like, just, yeah, idealizing this person in a very superficial way who, yeah, doesn't end up being anything, which I think just, like, when I think of my high school experience, like, very true. <laughs> I just feel like there's so... that's That was kind of fun and interesting to me. But, yeah, like... Um, yeah, the plot, I never really think about it too much with that film. It's, like, not the thing I latch on to. Yeah, it um, just but, sort of blurs out. Yeah, really. yeah. There is a progression from scene to scene, there but is. it really is just about the experience of, of sort of soaking in the moments. yeah. Yeah, the lack of the lack of a distinct story actually kind of helps because you feel as helpless as a viewer. You don't yeah. really know where it's going, but you sort of do. And yeah, this amorphous dread that starts to suffuse the film. I mean, almost yeah. from the beginning. Totally, totally from the beginning, and and throughout in like different ways. I think like yeah, like I said, like the the prom stuff, and like there's like those those highs that keep you kind of like. I think they're so necessary, right? Like, otherwise it would just kind of, you know, like those those darker moments probably wouldn't resonate as much if those... And I, I think about that, too, when I was doing Firecrackers a lot. It's like you need to have some moments of levity or moments where you feel safe and okay um, for an audience to latch onto it, you know? And I think for that, for Virgin Suicides, that's important um, that they have those, like, moments of levity or even that, like, dream sequence... It's not a dream sequence. Again, they're reading. The guys are reading the journal, yeah, right? Yeah, it's a it's a fantasy. Fantasy, lots of fantasies yeah. in that in the film. But yeah, that and like there's some Super Eight footage, and then like uh, Kirsten Dunst doing like the hula girl thing in the field, and mm-hmm. like Cecilia's alive again. Yeah, it's a very it's so dreamy. The film's so dreamy, but which I think would bother me honestly if it didn't have that other element to it, where it was actually getting at a darker truth. Because I'm not. I don't consider... I'm not necessarily drawn to, like, super feminine aesthetic things, necessarily. But I think that because it was um, hinting at something deeper and darker, it drew me, drew me in. I thought it was clever. And I guess, like, even Gus Van Sant's films have that dreamy quality, the ones that I was talking oh, about yeah, before. Um, which I tend to like uh, over and over again. I keep coming, coming back to that um, as, as, like, sort of the... I mean, even, I guess, like, people like Terrence Malick or even, like, Chloe Zhao now, like, has, like, dreamy qualities to the aesthetic of their films. And I always somehow, that resonates with me, and I don't know why that is. Um, Just is it chasing something transcendent in the middle of... Because they tend to be set in fairly unpleasant places, too. Yes. There's not a lot of hope in the real worlds of the characters. Yeah. 
So maybe it's just that the, yeah, the chance of escape. I mean, tied to some childhood something or other sure. for me, or just also maybe um, that I don't like to. I feel like I don't like to intellectualize a lot of my filmmaking, or like don't care about super like extremely heavily plot-driven, dialogue-driven things, or, like, things that are forcing me to use, like, a certain part of my brain. I'd rather... I definitely connect with an emotional intelligence mm-hmm. or that a filmmaker might have when they're making their film and, like, place upon their characters. So I think that's... There's... I think that there's, like, a plane of understanding that only exists in that sort of atmospheric, dreamy thing that I'm, like, getting information from that I can make sense of that's not super intellectual. I think music does that for me, too. It's like there's some sort of, like, truth being transmitted, but it's not not through words. It's not through plot. And I always, like, I really appreciated that in, um, in the films of... Well, specifically with Sofia Coppola, Virgin Suicides. Like I said, like, the other ones I felt... I didn't connect with as much. Right. Um, I still like them, but I would say that a filmmaker like Andrew Arnold had a, like her whole body work had a bigger impact on me. But specifically, Virgin Suicides has stuck with me yeah. over time. Yeah. When you mentioned social realism, uh, it's like, oh yeah, Andrea Arnold has that in Spades, but she yes. also has those incredible breaks from it mm-hmm. and stylization. There's there's definitely yes, a continuity, true. right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, like, it's interesting to talk about this now because you start thinking about your own work in a different way. You're like, oh, what does this mean? Yeah. It's like a therapy session. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's, that was, weirdly enough, that was the reason behind the podcast in the first okay, place. Just cool. the idea of illuminating somebody through their own, through their, not necessarily influence, but through the things that they already gravitate to. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and that does sort of bring us to the capper, which is mm-hmm. the same every time. Uh, what is it about, if anything, about the Virgin Suicides that you've, bored or stolen or, or lifted or absorbed into your own creative DNA? I feel like I've stolen a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think like those things I was talking about, like using, connecting with atmosphere, using the atmosphere as a way of telling information to an audience, transmitting information to an audience mm-hmm. that they are maybe not conscious of, that they're absorbing. Um, it's through a mood rather than through um, a specific plot line or plot device. And then also, obviously being very inspired by uh, the air soundtrack and how it was used mm-hmm. and kind of thinking about score in my own film as a way to underscore a dark tension that may be existing even in a bright, fun, sunny, like kids running around on a beach thing. But the score is like horrifying and like grinding. Yeah. And I, I kind of definitely borrowed that or stole that from Frigid Suicides. <laughs> Um, and then obviously looking at women who are feel trapped in some way. Um, I just always, I come back to that theme a lot. Um, just in terms of what I'm interested in, in literature and films, but also in, in the stories that I want to tell. I don't know if I'll always keep telling that story. Uh, I think there's many ways to tell it, but I definitely kind of started there. I think it kind of started with the Virgin Suicides and then led me down a path of discovering other films that deal with that topic. Mm-hmm. Picnic at Hanging Rock being one of them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not a new idea. No. Right? The, the, it's just so much more complex now. There are so many more yeah. places to take it, and you can... You know, again, it's the shorthand of... It's Homer Simpson. It's like, oh, the patriarchy. It's mm-hmm. kind of the problem in, in Thelma and Louise is that no one will listen to them, and... yeah. 
they also are trapped in a movie that is engineering them to go in this direction. Right. Picnic at Hanging Rock and Virgin Suicides are much more oblique about how and why. And, and I mean, I think Virgin Suicides removes the why entirely mm-hmm. by the time we get there, mm-hmm. which is what's so unnerving about it. And Firecrackers is just, it's about people who look at hopelessness and then just go, no, fuck that. We're not doing that. <laughs> yeah. I kind of love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's, I guess that was like, looking at the films that I was inspired by or something like Virgin Suicides and being like, that is a way to deal with this topic, but I want my female female characters to have more agency. Yeah. I want them to, to talk about why they're unsatisfied or confront, be confrontational mm-hmm. um, and not passive. And I think that that was a reaction to something that inspired me too, which I think is kind of cool when that happens. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, it's an answer film. In a weird yeah. way, like it, you're yeah. you're in communication with the thing that the thing that inspired you. Yeah, wow, Norm, like illuminating, <laughs> just like therapy session. It's what I'm, I'm just here like, for. oh yeah, I'm gonna be thinking about that now. And it's but it's nice to have those conversations because I think you need to examine your yourself in context to your art and and your influences. And I don't think I do that enough. I'm happy to provide a platform. <laughs> yeah. My thanks to Jasmine Mazafari whose terrific first feature, Firecrackers, is available on Crave right now and will be on demand and on iTunes this Friday, July 12th. It'll also be playing theatrically in a few major cities, so check your local listings. Thanks also to Ali Lemaire. She knows what she did. Jasmine's not on Twitter, but you can follow her movie at underscore firecrackers, and you can find The Virgin Suicides on Blu-ray and DVD in an excellent special edition from the Criterion Collection, featuring an essay by a friend of the show, Megan Abbott. That's cool. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play, though it's not yet available on the Criterion channel. Although, the Criterion channel does have Sofia Coppola's short film, Lick the Star, so you can find that if you want to. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy the show, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps, it truly does. Thanks for your support, and thanks for listening.